This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold. Hey, wait a minute, guys. I don't have to do this anymore. Katie Rich is back. Hey! Yay! <laughs> I Welcome, Katie. Thanks. Yeah, I'm back with uh, all the scripted intros you could possibly need. Thank God. Uh... Welcome to Little Gold Men. It's still the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply, and we're still proving that award season is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich. As previously mentioned, I am back. I'm here with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hi, Katie. And Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And Vanity Fair senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello! Yay! <laughs> I am back, and uh, I had really great timing, and I went on leave during all of the fall festivals, so I don't know anything about Oscar season, and I'm going to rely on you guys to catch me up, because that's what this podcast is all about. And then after that, we're going to be joined by Molly Shannon, who is the star of the drama Other People, which got rave reviews at Sundance, and is now in theaters and available on demand but first you guys talked about the emmys the emmys are a distant memory but uh, it's never too early to think about next year and hbo has brought us westworld which is their big new splashy series they're hoping will be the new game of thrones as that series is ending before it can win any emmys is it any good can you guys uh let me know if the show is any good uh, i like it <laughs> good yeah, i i Done. gave it a i think a pretty positive review on the site well and you said that the first episode isn't even what's good which is all the rest of us have seen how many episodes have you seen four okay four and joanna you've seen four as well right i've seen four as well yeah now joanna do you agree with me that three and four are the strongest episodes that we've seen i think four is yeah i agree about four sandy newton's stuff gets really interesting in four um but i liked it like richard did but i have like a monuments valley full of reservations about Westworld. I'm just really nervous. I think I've been burned a lot by these big, splashy premieres. I want it to be good, though. Yeah. I really do. Yeah, Joanna, you have a piece up on the site right now that's kind of about how we have all these shows premiering that say they have an end game and they have, say they have the whole thing mapped out, but not many shows have pulled that off, and the creators of this show don't really have a track record with it. So, kind of going to something hoping that it's going to be six seasons worth of well constructed story is maybe a fool's game at this point since it's like Breaking Bad and no one else who's done it. Yeah, I mean, so the creators here, we've got J.J. Abrams as a producer, but the main creators are Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan, a married team. If the last name sounds familiar, that's because Jonathan Nolan's the brother of Christopher Nolan and often the screenwriter on his films. And the point I'm just trying to make is that the Nolans are famous for dazzling visuals and really strong performances and uh, complicated, high-concept things that don't always stick the landing. So... I don't know if I'm just like the wet blanket invited to the Westworld party, but I'm just nervous about the amount of mythology they're trying to pull off on this show. Yeah, and it's a funny thing with this show in particular because, it, and a lot of people have said this before me, I'm not coming up with this insight fresh right here, but um, it's kind of meta because it's a show about storytelling and about sort of reality versus expectation and all this stuff. So it feels like this. it's this kind of reflexive thing of HBO being like, oh, so here's us reflecting on our high concept big expensive shows with a show about a high concept <laughs> expensive thing you know yeah right. so it's just kind of interesting and so i think that any success or failure the show has is just kind of inevitably going to mirror 
or or say something about HBOs and the Nolans, and you know, I think it's just kind of it's built that into its DNA, which should be interesting to watch. Does the mythology get substantially more complex than it is as laid out in the first episode? It's pretty complex in the first episode. That's what I'm saying. I don't I don't know that I want any there's, more layers of complexity after that. Somewhat bigger mystery introduced. Although I guess Ed Harris's character in the pilot sort of starts trickling into okay. it with the game and what there's another level to the game and then another character sort of kind of confirms that yeah and then there's also like an added layer above it like the board of directors that was right. teased in the pilot but that's like sort of expanded on and there's three major characters that weren't introduced in the pilot like three even more characters yes. yeah. ben barnes jimmy simpson and clifton collins jr they were all added after the pilot and so they're all introduced in episode two it's a lot of cast a lot of plot Game of Thrones, of course, very famously has all of that, too, and people love it. And, and they had a pilot success. that had to be reshot, uh, kind of like the Westworld pilot, where they shut down production. Absolutely. But I guess the point I would make there is that Game of Thrones had a structure laid out by these books, at least for the first, you know, four seasons that were decades of the making, whereas, you know, this is the Nolans orchestrating this. Um, you know, once again, I'm just your friendly neighborhood cynic uh, <laughs> here to talk about Westworld, so... Well, I'm happy to have something that's kind of dense and layered to watch on Sunday nights. Like, I kind of miss that Game of yeah. Thrones tradition of jumping into a new world. Like, and even if this isn't as good as Game of Thrones, I think as long as it doesn't become, like, frustratingly bad, I will stick with it. Just, I mean, it's beautiful to look at. The acting's been really interesting. I'm, I'm definitely intrigued enough to stick through maybe some Monument Valley-sized problems. Do they keep doing that Groundhog Day thing through so. every really episode? Like they do. Yeah. That just keeps, that day keeps starting over Pretty and much. over again? Yeah. yeah. Wow. And then you see it the, the day for other people. If I, right. I, yeah. Okay. Okay. So the next episode, just a little tease, kind of shows you how guests enter the park, like what that process is like, uh, which is pretty good. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know. I just find the world fascinating. I'm curious to see where they go. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm I'm sort of always beating the drum for like mini series. Like I would wa- I would watch ten episodes of this and have a story end. I don't. That's yes. Not clearly yes. Not HBO's yes. plan there. Do, but, have they yeah. actually said they want six seasons? Has that been I think laid they out said or five seasons? Five. Okay. They yeah. plotted out five seasons, yeah. and well, I agree with you, Richard. I think I would have far fewer reservations if this were a ten episode mini series. Yeah. I'd be all aboard for it. Well, so. where were you all for the night of then? That was a 10 episode series. <laughs> yeah. I Although, was there. <laughs> is that, but wait a minute. I just finally finished the night of and mm-hmm. I have a big question. Are they going to come back and do season two with the same crime and a different suspected killer? I think that's it. I think it? it's just well, done. I think. I think they left the door open. They did the, leave the British open. series is multiple seasons. Uh, so wait and see, I think was sort of their approach to it. Okay. Man. I hope not. Uh, well, real quick from all of you. <laughs> We're going to uh, do Eastworld for next, <laughs> next season. Well, and in then, the books, isn't there like a medieval world and a like pirate world or something? I think I think in the Michael Crichton book, there's like multiple other worlds. I don't, you can go is it, right. it's it not a book. It's just it's, it's based on a, a film. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it was never a movie. book. Sorry. But is that movie even exist or Yeah, or yeah. Yul Brenner. Yul yeah. Brenner is the Ed Harris, oh well, God. sort of. This is the year remaking Yul Brenner westerns. Yeah, Yul Brenner in a black in a black cowboy hat. Who's going to do the King and I. Yeah. <laughs> He's really scary in the original Westworld movie. He's like this glitchy, malfunctioning killer robot. Um, but like the original Westworld is, is uh, it's very much Jurassic Park and it's contained. And I just don't know that I want five seasons of Jurassic Park. I didn't want four movies of Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> and counting. Yeah. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. 
So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Real quick from all of you, if you were really rich, would you go to Westworld? I was trying to think about that, and somebody on Twitter kind of vocalized my... I was like, I would do one if it was like they could recreate like 1970s New York. Mm, yeah, you can Although like, oh 1970s New York was terrible for a lot of people, so I shouldn't try to glamorize <laughs> no, but it. if nothing bad but can like, happen to you, right, it would be awesome. If you could go to like Studio 54 and like hang, hang out with Andy Warhol, yeah. uh, that would be fun. That would be more my speed than like, you know, hookers and little saloons. I think I would, do, I would do like 1920s London. That's oh, what I would do. God. Yeah. That's a good one. This is much more fun than just what I go to West World, which I would, by the way, I just like hang out in the saloon and like watch people fight. And I mean, I wouldn't kill yeah. anybody. Just be clear. Well, I might you kill say some that people. Now. They're not even people. <laughs> I know, but... Mike. That's the whole point. <laughs> 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 are, they are people. You are the emperor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's funny. It made me think about my. It, this is going to sound crazy, but it, watching it last night, maybe, and then I had to walk the dog, take a break, and walk the dog, and I was like, this dog is kind of like the android. <laughs> You know, we kind of treat our pets like, you know what I mean? They're just at our service. Uh-huh. We kind of, they amuse us. You love your own, but all the other ones you don't really think of as having full inner lives. I think that about babies a lot of times. I've, I've oh. learned this, that when you have a baby, they're way more interesting than other people. So, yeah. See that? Babies and dogs are the androids babies of our, are the androids <laughs> of our Except we don't kill them for sports, as I far mean, as I know. Some people yourself. <laughs> animals, not, yeah. not babies. <laughs> So as mentioned, I kind of missed out on all of fall festival season. And uh, by reading Twitter, I've caught a few things about what's up and what's down in the Oscar season. But I kind of want to use this opportunity for myself and maybe some listeners who are a little behind just for some big questions that I need to be caught up on and I need a straight up and down answer. Everybody ready? Yeah. Sure. Okay. A couple movies that came out earlier this year that I don't know if they're done. Light Between Oceans. Did anyone care about it? Done. What happened? Uh, it just didn't come together. You know, I, I liked it. I, yeah, I, I think that that movie has its fans, and I like a big portion of it. We had Derek Sinfrance on the show, and he is such an interesting guy and such a talented filmmaker. It just feels like it's kind of a transitioning movie for him. Like, he's sort of exploring new territory, mm-hmm. and, and, and it didn't quite catch with people. But unfortunately, I would say its Oscar chances have sailed. <sighs> Fastbender will get yeah. that Oscar one of these days. I, yeah, I, I mean, do you think there's no chance for Fastbender in there? No. No. <laughs> even in a, even in a week year. Just because no. nobody's talking about it yeah. anymore it at came all. Out at the wrong time of year. If it had come out yeah. maybe in November or something like maybe. Yeah. yeah. I think Labor Day release that's pretty rough. Okay, uh, speaking of release dates, Florence Foster Jenkins came out in August. Is Meryl Streep still in it? Can never count her out. Okay. Hugh Grant right is like the thing that we think might happen. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's yeah. exciting. I think that probably especially because, you know, the male fields are a little bit empty right now. Okay. I have no evidence for this, but I think Isabel Huppert is going to take the Meryl Streep slot, or very much could. Yeah. Well, you're leading me into my next question, which is that I keep hearing Best Actress is super stacked. Yes. So, uh, so what's happening there? Why are we so excited about Best Actress? Well, I mean, there's Isabel Huppert, who has two great movies this year, Emma Stone and La La Land. Um, potentially, we talked about this last week, about the Defenses trailer, Viola, Viola Davis. Viola Davis is still deciding which award she yeah. wants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the She's just sort of thing. sitting back in her chair being like, do I want... Mm-hmm. She's mapping. If you win for supporting, what does your career become? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's running all that through the algorithm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
She's in there. Natalie Portman for Jackie's mm-hmm. in there. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just a, there are a lot of big performances in movies that are pretty highly regarded. So I think that that's kind of why the focus has been on that. You know, compared to last year where the whole thing was Leo, 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 and mm-hmm. you know, uh, oh, Amy Adams too for Arrival, 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 yeah, mm-hmm. um, which has yet to be released, but it's everyone at festivals have seen it and, it's and really good, played really well, and mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, so Best Actress is stacked, and Best Actor is looking relatively thin by comparison. It is thinner, although I gotta say, we were talking about this uh, last week, and you know, you got Denzel for Fences, you've got Ryan Gosling for La La Land, you've got Casey Affleck, who we were saying... Oh, poor Casey Affleck, like maybe even the best performance of the year, but he, since he doesn't have quite the same star power, he mm-hmm. might not be able to. But then I watched it. I don't know. I know a lot of people have seen it, but I don't know. This movie is so good. I think I might just beat the drum for Casey Affleck through the hey. rest of the thing. It's very me. It's like a, you know, Irish Catholic guy <laughs> dealing with a lot of internal torment or whatever. I fall for those kinds of things, but it's unbelievably good, this performance. Well, yeah. it's an Amazon movie that's not on Amazon, so I have no idea yeah. when I'll get to mm-hmm, see it. Mm-hmm. What else is in uh, is in actor? Well, Denzel, you know, there are a couple Not Fassbender, apparently, no, has no chance, even so. though we can't think of the thir- fourth and fifth. There are some movies coming down the pike that could be, like Scorsese has Silence. Silence. I think Neeson will be supporting for that, but Andrew Garfield has that and Hacksaw Ridge, Mel Gibson's movie, which was really well-reviewed right. at Venice. And then uh, there's this movie Gold, this mysterious Stephen Gagan movie with Matthew McConaughey with the weird bald head it's a very kind of like transform performance who knows about that i did speak to someone who saw it yesterday and i heard some interesting things that i probably shouldn't (coughs) elaborate on but well you got tom hanks for sully you got michael keaton for the founder you got joel edgerton for loving yeah Yeah, i was gonna say michael keaton is like a weird conversation that like peaked early and then we're not talking about it now i mean the founder still hasn't come out but yeah because it was supposed to come out earlier in the year and then they moved it right to increase the Oscar chances. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we shouldn't sleep on Keaton. I There's think. definitely part of my brain that thinks he won an Oscar for Birdman. Like, I kind of yes. forget that yeah. it didn't happen. So yeah. maybe, I don't know if that helps or hurts him in this situation, but he's definitely in there. Well, I was going to ask about Sully because it's this crazy huge hit. And last mm-hmm. time Clint Eastwood had a big hit, it was an American Sniper. And I, my theory is that if the Oscars were held a month later that year, American Sniper would have won Best Picture. So are, should we be watching out for Sully? I think, yeah, there could be a Sully surprise. I think that especially now... That <laughs> Surprising we, as a flock of geese. Yeah, well, but in a good way. Um, you know, I think that the, I think the finances on that, like the, the box office really helped that movie a lot. Yeah. And it's a solid movie. I mean, he's really good in it. It's small, though, even though it's about this crazy thing. It's not like a huge, expansive story. I feel like Hanks could get a nomination that's sort of like the Cranston Trumbo nomination, mm-hmm. where we're all kind of like, mm-hmm. huh, okay. That's a great actor. Uh, There's a lot of uh, older folks in the voting body. Let's just put it that way. You know, we have to keep that in mind. So the thing that always surprises me that Tom Hanks didn't get nominated for Captain Phillips, in which he was incredible. So you think that Tom Hanks is a slam dunk, but it kind of seems like he can miss somehow. Yeah. I mean, it does happen. There is precedent because of the Captain Phillips kind of upset. Yeah, that was really crazy. That's what I mean sort of by the Cranston nominations. Like, Tom Hanks is always so solid, but never... You know, recently, never very flashy. So I feel like we could get like a solid nomination versus a like, oh my God, Michael Keaton and Birdman, what that, where did this come from? 
Tom Hanks hasn't been nominated in 15 years. It's kind of crazy. Wow. He's been busy making that Da Vinci Code money. Uh, it, well, I was going to say, we're forgetting Inferno, guys. It's, <laughs> it's coming out later this fall. Well, You're right. I mean, if, he, if not for Captain Phillips, what could do it? I mean, I that scene at the end of the movie where he breaks down, mm-hmm. that's just like a classic Oscar yeah. audition tape. Yeah. Except it didn't feel like that, which is all the more reason. Yeah. Well, what can you do? Well, last question, speaking of Inferno. Uh, what's the big one on the horizon that we're looking for that's going to like upset the whole thing? Last year, there were like four movies coming out in December that everyone was waiting for. Is it Silence? Is it Passengers? I think it's a movie that I'm seeing, not this coming Friday, but next Friday, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Mm, at the New York Film Festival, right? I think that could be a real game changer. Either way. Either it plays weird and it's on this crazy frame rate and it's like a kind of a technical experience, apparently, in addition to this war drama. But uh, I, I don't know. I think Life of Pi was such a kind of sneaky, it won mm-hmm. him Best Director. Like, yep. I, mm-hmm. I don't think we can ever count him out or his movies out. So I'm really excited for that movie. Yeah. And I think that's my kind of most anticipated. Mike, what about you? I don't know. I think Pastors looks like it'll be a good movie and make a lot of money, like but I, I don't, yeah, I'm not getting a this comes in and mixes up the Oscar race feel off of it. I don't know. I'm, I'm excited to see Billy Lynn, that's for sure. I don't know. It's hard to Joanna? say. Joanna? I'm going to go back to the founder and Keaton. Keaton with the spotlight and the Birdman, you know, Oscar track record. That's what I'm going to go with. All right. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. And now we're going to welcome Molly Shannon, who is the star of the movie Other People that premiered at Sundance earlier this year and is now available on demand in theaters. Molly is obviously famous for her stint on Saturday Night Live, but uh, as we talked to her, she's had a really interesting career since she left that show in a lot of different comedies and dramas, and this movie is another one that really proves the dramatic chops that she has that, uh, as she says, was always visible there even when she was playing Mary Catherine Gallagher and uh, sticking her hands in her armpits. Here's a fun topic. Um, Cremation. Oh. I'm not gonna, we talked about this. I, don't I know. know. We, I know. I, I know. We talked about. it. I just want to. I'm not going to be burned up. Okay. I don't. How would you like it if somebody set you on fire? No, thank you. Well, it's not like they light you. Uh, you know. I don't like camping, and I don't like fires, and I don't want to be personally lit on fire. I want to be frozen. Do they have that as an option? How you doing, Sacramento? City boy in the house. You're not too good for us now, are you? <laughs> I'm glad that you're moving home for a bit. Your mom's gonna need a lot of help. Don't look at us. We're drug addicts. <laughs> I thought you didn't want to try a medical marijuana. Well, I tried it. <laughs> I read your letter. Please put Dono outside. I can't stand to see him licking his penis. Dono, no, no, stop it. One by one. Does anybody have any questions about what's going on with mom? 
I doubt you gotta live your life, except you can't date anyone for a year. And you can't date that slut who came to the door today. When it's all said and done. I wish we could just travel the whole world real quick so you could just see everything. I get to see my whole world at dinner tonight. All I ever wanted was to be a mother. And oh my darling. I thought when your mom dies, you get that beautiful revelation about life. Just everything becomes clear. It all just feels like something that happens to other people. Oh, but nothing takes the place of you. Yeah, well, now you're other people to other people. So, Molly, between this and me and Earl and the Dying Girl, you've had kind of two huge Sundance hits in a row, which is a really probably a rare feat. Does it feel as amazing to be in the middle of something like that as it seems from the outside? It really does. I couldn't believe it. You know, both of those movies premiered at the Echo Theater. I forget which nights they were. Maybe they were both. Uh, Other People was the opening film. Yeah, isn't that wild? Yeah, Other People was the opening film. Okay. So, yes. I feel really, really lucky, and um, it's interesting, too, that there's death in both of those movies. In the one movie, I played a mother to a dying girl, and then in the other movie, I'm playing a woman who is dying. I feel really fortunate, and I've said this before, you know, I feel so grateful to Mike White, because I think I got offered these parts, because people really do love my work in Mike White's movies, and I think Mike showed people that I can do drama and comedy, because he knew we were, were really good friends in real life, so he was able to really write for me, but a lot of those directors would quote in their letters when they were offering me parts, they would say, I really love you in You're the Dog, or I love you in Enlightened, and Saturday Night Live, but but um, I just like to always just say how, how grateful I am to Mike White, that he kind of showed people that I could be dramatic. Well, I mean, I'm not going to take credit for anything, but, you know, when you would do the Mary Catherine Gallagher serious monologues from, like, Movies of the Week, like, I was like, oh, wait, she can actually do this. Like, this is not, you know, because you started as a dramatic actress, didn't you? I mean, at NYU? I did. Thanks for saying that. I like that you referenced the monologues, because those monologues were so serious to me. So when people think of me just as a comedian, I'm like, those Mary Catherine Gallagher monologues are like, oh, mama. And I always wanted them underscored with music. It was like drama and heart and tragedy. And it was like I poured my heart out. You know, even though it's a character and it was on a comedy show, those were very dramatic monologues. And yes, I went to NYU drama school and I started out doing monologues you know, with a southern accent with mama in them. (laughs) Mama. I did a lot of that before I got on Saturday Night Live. I remember when I was first starting, I memorized a monologue from The Twirler. It was like about a baton twirler. You know, and I used to do that all around town for agents. I was in that dramatic monologue to try to get signed by an agent. And yeah, so I, I was just a regular drama student at NYU. So when you, I mean, you have this long legacy on Saturday Night Live, and you've been doing this dramatic work, but when you're getting cast and things, when it's not people writing letters to you who have seen The Year of the Dog, do you find that you have to be like, no, 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 I can do this? Is there kind of that idea that you're just a comedic actress, or has that gone away, you know, 10 years after Year of the Dog was made, have people kind of gotten the message? I, I feel like people have kind of gotten the message. That's really nice, but I do feel that way. But I mean, let's see, those are different audiences that see those movies, so I definitely have people that just know Saturday Night Live, you know, and then I have other people that I think because I get recognized, you get to see the different types of people that see your work. So some people only know big comedy stuff, and then some people know both. It just depends on the type of fan. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. And then there's some people that have only seen me in Little Man, and that's also a compliment. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Like, there's all different types of people 
But I would generally say that people kind of do know that I do both now, I think, and I feel so happy about that. Is there one movie that you hear about more than anything else? Um, I would definitely say Superstar. <laughs> Superstar, I hear about a lot, like, every day of my life, I would say. All the time at Starbucks, you know, it's like, it seems to appeal to, like, everyone. Like, airports, all different age brackets, so it's uh, it's really great. <laughs> So Chris Kelly, who is the writer and director of Other People, is now the head writer of SNL. So I, I have to assume that was an automatic point of connection for you guys. Is that how you wound up working on this? Or did you just kind of like have a ton to bond over when you were working on the movie? Yeah, it's funny. We had never met, even though, yes, he's the head writer of SNL. But we never met at the show. I was at the scene there. I met Kate McKinnon and Edie. And I saw all these people, but I didn't meet Chris. So when other people came around, he just offered it to me. I think um, his story is that he would always, when he was pitching, would say, and you know, I'd like somebody like Molly Shannon to play my mom. But he didn't, I, I think he didn't know if, if, if he could get me or if I was available or I don't know, but he said he would always mention me. And then I just got the script. The financing came through pretty quickly. It was in the summertime. And I just, they were like, read it now and let us know if you want to do it. And I read the script in my bedroom and it, it it took my breath away. I, I really have never had that kind of feeling reading a script. It just really pulled at my heartstrings. And I really, as a mother in real life, I really related to the mother character. And I love her relationship with the son. And the script just leapt out at me. I was like, oh, are you kidding me? I feel like I'm dreaming. Like, I, 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 I get, I'm getting offered this part? Like, it just... I was so excited, and I've never so quickly called somebody on the phone. I called them, like, two minutes later. I called Chris. He was on his way to, like, the correspondence dinner. He was in New York, and I was in L.A., and I called him, and I said, I would love to do your movie. And he was like, you would? Really? He seemed kind of, like, surprised and in shock, and I was like, yes, yes. And so we started shooting quickly after that, because, like I said, the financing came together really quickly. And I was so excited that I, I had to go running for about 45 minutes. I ran myself around my neighborhood like a dog, because I was so <laughs> excited. I was like, I can't believe I'm going to be in this movie. And I would replay the scenes in my head, like, this was, like, my fantasy about all I ever wanted, like to be in a movie like this and, you know, becoming an actress. And I just felt like, wow, I can't believe this is happening, you know? So then if we can rewind back to January when it premiered at Sundance and it was so rapturously received. And I think your performance in particular got so much praise. Did that feel like a confirmation of something or was it an entirely new kind of surprise and excitement? It just felt like an entirely new kind of surprise and excitement. I really just wanted to do a good job for Chris because I like him so much and he's like such a nice person and he's so humble and and I just felt like I was like I can't believe this young kid you know Chris is young and he's a comedy writer and I couldn't believe for his first screenplay he wrote this like vulnerable moving complicated family emotional comedy I was like how did he do that I I I, I just admire his bravery so much that really all I was thinking about was really wanting to do a good job for Chris. And like, is that right? Like really wanting to, and you know, it's not a docudrama. He's not like, no, that's not how my mother did it. You know, he wanted the essence, you know, he, he wanted to hire also comedians to keep it, keep the balance too between comedy and drama, not let it get too heavy. But I really was just thinking about Chris. So then when, when people were saying really nice things about my performance, I was so surprised. I was like, wow, I did not expect that at all. I just mostly wanted to make sure Chris was happy with it and that I did a good job kind of getting her essence and her spirit and what she cared about and her values and and her complicated relationship with her son. I just wanted to do a really good job because I felt so lucky being given that material. You know, so I really, I didn't expect anything beyond that. I didn't even think about anything 
anything more than that. Just wanting to do like a good job on set that summertime when we shot it. Yeah. It's a very motherly attitude yeah. you have. It's like you adopted Chris as your own child by playing a version of his mom. Oh, oh well, you know what? He's just such a nice person, and and I I really I truly am like uh, you just you feel his heart in the movie. I feel like I could cry. Oh. I I feel like he's such a good person, and he's like so humble, and and I just feel like he did such a beautiful movie, and it's it's very universal because it's about family, and the son is gay, and it's complicated. And the father's not accepting his sexuality, and and the mother feels between the husband and the son, and but yet she's slipping away. Her life is being cut short, and. I think, you know, having lost my mom at a really young age, I like deeply, deeply related to the, the material and like what a, what a mother would do for her children and how she would do anything to buy for time, like brutalize her body and just like fighting for time to make it to these things. I just so deeply related to the material and was able to put, you know, my own stuff in it with also wanting to honor Chris's mom and Chris. And so it was just so special for me, like certainly such a, a highlight in my career. So as you were saying, there's all this, you know, really heavy stuff with the cancer, but he also cast all these comedians to try to bring some levity to it, you know, as, as there would be in real life. And one of the pleasures of watching the movie is every scene seems to bring a different actor or comedian you know from something. And I wonder, you know, you have this state in the comedy community. Like, did you know a lot of these people already? Or were you meeting some of these up-and-comers for the first time or combination? I, I met some of those up-and-comers for the first time, and they got so many good actors. I tell Chris, like, I'm like, oh, my God, I love all these people, like... Zach Woods and John Early and and I don't know the kid's name who was in the scene with the supermarket when he recognizes the kid from Sacramento who he mm-hmm. knew from years ago who was like, uh, I heard about your family situation. That's like one of my favorite scenes too. Paula Pell and I worked together at Saturday Night Live. She's the one with the stick that cures cancer. Mm-hmm. She, you know, um, she's just a powerhouse writer at Saturday Night Live for years and movie writer. Let's see, who else did I? Maude Apatow I never worked with. No, I think most I kind of just met on the set, you know. Um, um, Lennon, who was so good playing the teacher. Yeah. yeah, I might have seen them briefly like at parties, but I didn't know them well. So it was just such a fun set because you're with so many super talented comedians. Carrie Kinney, um, we shot those scenes, you know, like all in one or two nights, the New Year's party scene. So it was, it was such a fun set because it's all these great comic minds. J.J. Tota, you'd known for years, though, of course. J.J. Tota and I go back such a long yeah. time. Yes, how did you know? <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, J.J. Tota... Isn't he incredible? Yeah. Yeah, he was very much the, the scene stealer at Sundance. Like, I think he came out after the show. Like, when, when you guys came out on stage, the audience was really into him, which was fun to watch. This is the kid who plays Justin, I'm assuming. He's yeah. so fantastic. Well, the real story about that is that, I'm not sure if you guys heard this, but he came in for the audition with Chris and Naomi Scott and Adam Scott, our producers. And in real life, he said, I'm so sorry I'm late for this audition. I'm doing a full redact on my bedroom and um, I'm using Quero Marble and Chris was like oh my god this kid cannot be for real this is like I, I couldn't find a better character than this so because originally the character was supposed to be it was it was written differently and then they opened it up wider to see more different types of kids so so they changed it and then Chris just thought I, this he's the guy he's the one and Chris took him out for lunch and wrote down everything he was saying because he was like this is just these are just gems I'm going to put this in the movie yeah yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. you, you can tell it feels like a very organic kind of. Yeah, you know that kid can't have been cast to like do the like he he, right. he has to be like that in real life. There's not. Yeah. It's too authentic to be faked. 
Exactly, exactly, yes. I love when he's like, come here. No, please, please, I have work to do. I like the way he moves his arms. I mean, he's just naturally funny, too, you know? Yeah. Please, please, go, go. It's, oh, I could watch it over and over again. He seems like he might also have some southern-accented monologues with the with mama in it, in him, <laughs> at some point. You know, I know, doesn't he? Like a Beth Henley yeah. play is in his future. <laughs> like a one-man performance of The Glass Menagerie. Yeah. yeah. But you're right. He is the sweetest. Like, he'll do anything you want. I was like, JJ, can you make a video for my kids? And he's like, hi, Stella and Nolan. You know, he'll do... He's just sweet, and he loves show business. He's like... He's just adorable. Yeah. If we could shift gears for a second to Divorce, because that show is premiering on Sunday, and yeah. and you're, you're a big part in that. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to that and like what, because you're kind of, movies and TV, you've sort of straddled both. Like, is there a strategy there or is it just kind of uh, the best material, whatever the platform is? Yeah, there isn't really a strategy. I would say, yeah, the best material. And um, let me think. I mean, my dream was always cable because I love the writing and the schedule is great for a for a mom, I mean, if you could get that, but of course I was willing to do anything. But I just think there's so much fantastic writing on television now. And when I read that script, um, I was like, wow, Sharon Horgan, she's amazing. And I'm a fan of hers. Um, she, I, I just think she's so talented. She's from Ireland, and she's just like a powerhouse. Uh, I think that she's really, she has her finger on like the pulse of writing about women in a really honest way, infidelity, marriages, complications. I was like, wow. Because I've seen versions of that story of couples in conflict, but it tends to be too silly. And I, I, I don't like that because I feel like it's so rich with, it's like a comic gold mine. And I think that you can make it funny, but you have to keep the emotional stuff true. And I think she does a brilliant job of that. And Paul Sims, our co-executive producer, they're just, and then we have this great group staff of writers. So when I read it, I was like, wow, this is, this pilot twists and turns and surprises you. And, and I really just, I think she's amazing. And I think that you find yourself siding with one character, then moving toward another, and you kind of switch alliances halfway through. And she just does a really good job of that. She's a really honest writer and a brave writer and like a real force to be reckoned with, I think. Sharon Horgan. So yeah, so when I read that script, I was like, good. Ooh, this is juicy. This is like a, a show I would watch. So I just felt lucky to be asked to... Um, read for it and I knew Sarah Jessica Parker already from New York City we knew one another socially because uh, Matthew Broderick and I had worked together in the Music Man and we used to live in the same neighborhood so I love Sarah and she's just the best and she's just like you know Hollywood royalty an elegant class act and I was a huge fan of her from Sex and the City I think she's such a good actress and she's just like a really considerate person who's always interested like how are you asking you about yourself so I felt so lucky to to get that part I, and um, I think TV sometimes takes a while to like figure out the tone and the characters and how to write for them like so I'm very like I guess I'm like I approach it like business like like well I hope I can keep being written in and this would be so great if this could keep working but i because i went i was on snl for a while i understand that these things are a process and they take time to to figure out and i'm i feel really lucky to be a part of it what did snl teach you about that process because that show seems so different from something like divorce it's like a scripted cable series it is so different i think because snl is such a writing job i wrote a lot of my characters you have to write your way to get on air so you i come from more writing background and i think that i'm always looking at you have to kind of slowly show them what you can do. 
and, you know, kind of establish your character. And that doesn't just happen overnight. I think that's why TV's tough because sometimes if something right out of the gate doesn't do well, it can be quickly canceled, whereas it really takes, like, a staff and the cast a while to kind of figure itself out. So it's nice if there's that time to kind of develop and then, like, get it, you know? So I think HBO is great that way. They seem to really give shows a chance. And so I guess I just more think about the writing and, like, just really patient with the writers of like, okay, good, I hope they can fully figure out my character. And, you know, Sarah Jessica and Thomas Hayden Church are the central characters. They have to do the heavy lifting, but then we're the side ones. And we're thinking about the writing of it, like understanding what they have to do to establish the main characters and try to not be selfish and just think of my part and just think of the, the show as a whole. That helps me. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Oh, yeah. 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 So now that you've been working with Tracy Letts on the show, is there any chance he might write some really juicy theater role for you, kind of an August Osage County style that would be I don't amazing. Know, family I drama? Love that question. Well, that would be amazing. It's so funny. On the show, they let him improvise sometimes, and I'm like, he's the best improviser because he just writes so well. So it's so fun when we, me and Tracy, our couple fights. He's he will just say the best things just off the top of his head. So that would be. That would be wonderful. I would love that. <laughs> you might finally get your Big Mama monologue. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, he would be the best one to write it, right? I think so, yeah. Oh, Mama, I know. <laughs> That's so great. So I guess uh, one last question before we let you go. Uh, Saturday Night Live during election seasons tends to be kind of at the forefront of all conversation. Do you tune in, like the rest of us, when it's election season, kind of dying to see what's going on? Or are you a, a regular I do. watcher? I thought... I do. I tune in. I love it. I'm still really close to Lauren Michaels. He's just the best. And uh, I tuned in to the to the season premiere, and I thought it was excellent. I was like, wow. You know, I, I thought that Alec Baldwin was fantastic. Um, well, of course, Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider, this is their first year as head writer. So I just thought the show was really fresh. I, I, I thought it was excellent. I watch every week. I love the girls. I think they're so strong. I, I, I love this cast. I think they're great. I really can't wait to see if they have someone playing Tim Kaine if they do the VP debate. I don't really know what you do with it, but it's a big comedy challenge. I know. It's so fun to see who's going to get cast as what. And, you know, it's it's really very exciting. But I thought they handled it so well. And it was so good that they had the debates before the first show. It was perfect timing. Yeah. No, no it's almost like they the debate commission kind of knows SNL schedule. And it's like, okay, we'll do this to get the <laughs> maximum level of attention. Exactly, exactly. They all watch. All those politicians watch SNL. I remember when I was on it, they're all very aware of what's going on. <laughs> well, yeah. Molly, thank you so much for joining us. And congratulations on other people. I, you know, it's available for lots of people to watch. So it seems like it's going to, like, you're the dog. It's going to keep getting discovered more and more by people as they uh, find out how great it is. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you so much. <laughs> So before we go, uh, one more chance to catch me up on the Oscar race. What's the state of the best supporting actor? Who's going to win if you had to do it right now? If I had to do, oh, I mean, I, you know, Hugh <laughs> really Grant, man, I, I'm, I've been rooting for him since I saw the movie back in like July or June. Mm-hmm. Um, he's so good in Florence Foster Jenkins, and it's such a nice kind of comebacky. And it's not like a comeback like he was out of work. He chose not to act yeah. much, f- you know, for like most of the thoughts. So yeah, I would say that. But you know, sight unseen. Joe Reed, friend of the podcast, has this intuition, and he's rarely wrong, that Liam Neeson could win for Silence. Oh, yeah, I like that theory. Because he's never won an Oscar. Which is crazy. You know, he missed his chance for Lincoln, because he was originally going to play Lincoln, and then kind of 
dropped out, and then Daniel Day Lewis won it. So I don't know. I would say though between those two, I'm just looking. I often cheat during this segment, and I'm looking at Gold Derby to see what people have, and I'm surprised pleasantly, and I like it. Is Mahershala Ali? from Moonlight oh, is on a lot of people's yeah. lists and that's one of the movies I've actually seen mm. and he's freaking amazing and he's having such a year I yeah mean, with Luke Cage and other things like, and he's in Hidden Figures I believe like coming up so yeah, yeah. so I could I like that one I'm mm-hmm. gonna I'm gonna p- plunk down for that Joanna how about you uh, they stole my answers. Oh no! Oh. But I, you know what? I will do my dad's vote instead <laughs> because he asks me every day, which is Jeff Bridges and Hell or High Water, which I don't think is going to happen. He is. I've my, seen Hell or High Water, and it's one of the things I've seen. He's very good in it, but that my, also my, doesn't. My dad really wants an Oscar for Jeff Bridges for Hell or High Water, so that's the dad vote. And when talking about this category, we should be clear: we don't know yet if the geese from Sully are running in <laughs> actress oh. or actor. We don't yeah, know. That's true. So that clearly <laughs> did they get their SAG card so they could qualify? Yeah. So they're sag after now, and you know. <laughs> but I tell you who's popping up a lot as well is Steve Martin for Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. Oh, I didn't lot. even know. And who was I've in heard it. whispers about Vin Diesel in that movie, same movie. But has anyone actually seen it? I thought no. like no one seen so. it. So people are just kind of like Steve Martin is like a man of a certain age, so, and be, it's a prestige movie. It's and classic. He hosted the move. Oscars not long ago. Uh huh. Yeah, tune in two weeks uh-huh. from now. I guess you guys will have a lot of. Uh, Intel for us on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rich and I are spending Friday evening together, yeah. <laughs> watching Angley's whatever technology long halftime screening. <laughs> that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening and for having me back. Please rate and review us on iTunes if you get the chance. It helps us find new listeners, and we appreciate it. And we're all writing about award season and all the rest of it at VanityFair.com. We're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men, and individually, I'm at Katie Rich. Richard? Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And Joanna? Joe wrote this. This episode was produced and edited by Alana Milner, and thanks to Lara Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the best Hillary Clinton response to the vice presidential debate goes to Mike Hogan. Just running all that through the algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.